You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. As you know, we're making our way through Luke's Gospel. We're in Luke chapter 9. Uh, Last week, we looked at a very important passage, a passage in which Jesus, for the first time, confessed to his disciples uh, that he would uh, have to suffer and be rejected and killed and uh, die and be raised again. Uh, He's going to make that confession two more times. We've just seen him uh, do it once, and that was last week. Next week, we'll hear him do it Uh, the second time, and then in between those two uh, confessions of Jesus' future on earth, uh, there is this scene, uh, the transfiguration, a very uh, confusing, difficult, mysterious uh, scene, hard to know uh, what exactly to make of it. We're going to dive uh, right in. We're looking this morning at Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. Um, little theologians, what I'd like for you to draw is I'd like you to draw this mountain with six figures on the mountain, six people on the mountain. But what's very important is that there is, you're going to draw it this way, I don't know how to explain it, um, there is a finger from heaven that is pointing at one of those six individuals. A finger from heaven pointing at one of those six individuals on this mountain. So that's what I'd like for you to try and, uh, and draw for me. Uh, we're at Luke chapter 9, uh, beginning at verse 28. This is a scene that is called uh, often the transfiguration of Jesus. Let's uh, pray first, and then we'll look at Luke 9:28. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for its uh, revelation, but also that it points to the true revelation, uh, your uh, most clear revelation of who you are and what your plan is, that revelation in Jesus. Thank you for your word that tells us about him, every place in it. Help us to love that word. Help us to apply that word to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Again, Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. If you don't have a Bible, wave your hand. Joel can get a Bible to you. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about... Eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem." Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of our Lord. 
Now, I'm sure most everyone here has read that scene time and time again, and it's a scene that's just one of those in the Bible that it confused you. The last time you read it, it's going to confuse you again. It'll confuse you again and again every time you read it. And what I'd like for us to do is to dive a little bit into some of the elements of this event, just to try and uh, ascertain not simply why it's here, but what exactly is uh, significant about this scene. But I want to begin by doing something I don't normally do, and that is by quoting a celebrity. You know, I'm sure that all of you are like me and that celebrities rarely say anything of any interest at all. But I'm not a big music fan, but uh, Paul Simon is one of those musicians that when he's interviewed, he almost always says something very wise and insightful and intelligent. Um, and so I, I collect quotes. I have just tons and tons of quotes. And I notice a pattern that he's like the only musician I ever quote, but he just says so many interesting things when he sits down for an interview. Um, I can remember an interview in 2006 when he was 65 years old, and he said, he, he admitted that when he was a young songwriter, uh, he said whatever he had to say, and it wasn't until years later that he began to ask himself if he deeply believed any of that stuff that he said or sang about. I think that's a wonderful admission for someone whose lyrics are just permanently embedded in many people's memory. He wonders if he's deeply believes them at all now. And in a recent interview, he was asked about his uh, wonderful ability to capture emotional depth and pathos in so many of his songs. His songs really do read like rich yet winsome philosophical reflections on rather ordinary experiences that all of us encounter in life. And thinking about songwriting and sadness, uh, he says this, he says, you know, when you really get into tender areas in people's lives, you don't have to put a stick in it. You just, you just touch it gently and it hurts just enough. And then you move away just to indicate that you have some compassion for how tough it is for just about everybody to make it through this life. I like this picture of addressing sensitive areas of people's lives with tenderness. I think about Paul Simon's lyrics like a stick. He thinks about his lyrics like a, like a stick that he can reach out and touch people with. And he admits that he doesn't want to wildly churn the emotions of people into a frothy stew. Instead, if he can just touch them gently, in just the right area, and then move away. He can communicate so much. There is a subtlety to the craft of talking about our deepest emotions that I think Paul Simon really gets. Now, I realize that this whole thing may be just a little bit too English majory for you all, but let me, let me tell you what I mean. We often look at this transfiguration scene as a great explosion of God's revelation, a, a cataclysmic shock to the human brain, a moment so enormous in magnitude that it becomes a test case for what it means to stand before the radiance presence of God. And here God is in his richest array, Jesus with his face shining like the sun, his clothing as white as light itself, the attendance of men who died centuries ago or should have died centuries ago. And I understand all of this, the transfiguration is an extraordinary event. 
It's huge. It stands out in Scripture. And we ought to look at it as being cataclysmic. But you also have to realize this. It's just a tap with a stick. It's God's fingertip. That's all. It's a mere glimpse of His glory, of His radiance. Do you not think that if God were to reveal Himself entirely on this mountain as He truly is, that any of these men besides Jesus would remain standing? It's just a tap with the end of a stick. It's a reminder of who He is and a reminder of who we are. This scene is huge. It's enormous. I understand that. It stands out in Scripture. You're reading through the Gospels and you run into Mark 9 or Matthew 17 or Luke 9 and and you're just thunderstruck by this. But it's just a merciful glimpse of God that does not destroy us. Why? Why doesn't this glimpse destroy us? Because John, Peter, and James have just heard that Jesus must be must suffer, be rejected, and killed. And it's here in this scene that God is saying that that's actually necessary. The only way to be with God is to actually be with His Son who suffered. That's why no one dies. It's the presence of Jesus. And it's just the tip of that stick. Imagine what God will be like when He comes in fullness in Jesus Christ. As we move along in this passage, I want to tell you what I'm going to be doing. I've divided the event into three scenes, and I want us to consider both the setting and the significance of each scene. Uh, The scene of prayer, the scene of a conversation, and the scene of a response, a response from Peter and a response from God. Uh, The setting and significance of this event that grows out of prayer. Let's begin with prayer. We already know that Jesus prays often. We already know that Jesus would often pray uh, by Himself. And we already know that Jesus would sometimes pray in desolate places, or in this case, a mountain. Uh, Last week, we witnessed Jesus praying alone, but with His disciples nearby. And here we see Jesus deliberately taking three of His disciples with Him, and they hike up an unknown mountain. And the reference to eight days after, I think, is meant for us to look backwards to about eight days ago when Jesus first broached the subject of his suffering and his death. And Luke is saying that we need to keep that suffering and death in our minds as we read this transfiguration scene. And these three in particular are invited. Why these three? James, Peter, and John. I wonder if they're invited solely because these were exactly the three guys that were in another scene of death in the ministry of Jesus, the raising of the dead girl at Capernaum. When Jesus raised that girl uh, from the dead, it was only Jesus and the parents and these three disciples that actually uh, came into that girl's room with him. And in that girl's room, she lay dead on her bed. And I wonder if that scene of death is supposed to be in our minds as we read this transfiguration story. Because the three men who happen to be there are the three men who were with Jesus when he uh, walked into a room with a dead girl and gave her life. 
It is absolutely and notoriously difficult to understand the significance of the transfiguration. I'm going to offer a rather strong uh, appeal to you at the end of the sermon about how to understand the transfiguration, but there are enough cues even before Moses and Elijah come onto the scene to understand that this transfiguration is supposed to tell us something about the compatibility between God's glory and the death of His Son. There's something about death and glory that in God's mind go together. How astounding that this partial unveiling of the glory of Jesus would happen in the context of death. Eight days ago, Jesus said that He must die. And here He seems to be saying that His death is not a frustration of God's plan, but it's a path that must be traveled in order for Him to be glorified. And on this mountain, perhaps all four of them are kneeling together. Uh, They have Jesus. Jesus presumably is leading them in prayer. Uh, Verse 29 is clear that they're in the middle of that prayer when something happens. Imagine that. They're all praying together and something happens. Uh, Do you imagine that as the disciples were praying, their eyes are closed? As evangelicals, we know you should never open your eyes when you pray, right? And the disciples are together with Jesus, their eyes are closed. And what is it? Do you think that it is the warmth of light behind their eyelids that causes them to open their eyes and take in this sight? What is it? The prayer is actually interrupted. It's interrupted. And it would seem as though that hot glow of Jesus' radiant clothes has penetrated those disciples' eyelids and they couldn't but avoid opening their eyes. And as they did so, they see the altered face of their Lord barely visible behind the brightness of His clothing. It seems as if there is an immediate encouragement that comes from this scene. And that encouragement is this. Peter, James, and John, as soon as they open their eyes, they understand that Jesus is a unique individual on the world stage. They would have no doubt that the man that they've been following for the past year and a half or more is truly a unique man. In their minds, there has always been something about Jesus that separates him from every other man. This has been the case with the teaching ministry of Jesus. This has been the case with the miracle-working ministry of Jesus. But there is no doubt now that he is a special figure. He is the only one who is radiant on that mountain. This is not all. Keep in mind that around eight days ago, they heard Jesus say to them, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That's Luke 9.27. And I said last week that I think that verse points to this very scene. And these are those men who have not tasted death before seeing the kingdom of God. And it may be that as they stand before this fluorescent version of their Lord, they sense for the first time that the kingdom of God is vastly superior to the kingdom of Rome or the kingdom of Persia. They have been corrected. God's kingdom is utterly different than what we imagined, far better than we could possibly imagine. The prayer is interrupted by a radiant Jesus and the disciples know that He's unique and they know that this kingdom is beyond their imagination. Yet, yet, this is just the beginning of what's happening on this mountain. And just as their prayer was interrupted by a transformed prayer, now the wonder of His glory is interrupted by a conversation. 
and the scene moves. Verse 30 tells us that two men appeared with Jesus and they enter into a conversation with Jesus. Can you imagine the disciples? There's so much to take in. Even as we look at this passage, it's hard to consider all the moving pieces here. The disciples still haven't recovered from seeing the altered face of their Lord, the brightness of His clothing, just beginning to intellectually make sense of what's happening. And two men appear and the and a conversation begins. You know, sometimes we're afraid to ask the uh, obvious questions, but an obvious question here is, how do they recognize that this is Moses and Elijah? Do you have an answer for that? I have a couple of answers, neither of them I'm totally pleased with, but it would seem as though that uh, Moses and Elijah certainly takes on an earthly body so that somehow these bodies are recognizable by the disciples. We're not giving it, given any grammatical cues that they're, uh, they're there only in a spiritual way. It seems as though there's uh, some physical aspect for the disciples to take in. Verse 32 is unique to Luke's gospel, and there we read that the disciples were heavy with sleep, and it, this is, this is the rationale I don't care for. It may be that in their slumber, they were overhearing a conversation between Jesus, uh, Moses, and Elijah, and that uh, in their slumber, God illuminated their minds to understand who these individuals were, not by their appearance, but just the nature of their conversation. And I suppose that could be, but I think they saw them and they recognized Moses as Moses and Elijah as Elijah. It could be this. It could be that the stories of the Old Testament were so much a part of their uh, education as boys that uh, there were oral traditions concerning what Moses looked like and what Elijah looked like. And they know these men through and through, through their training, but they also have an understanding of maybe their physical appearances from some oral tradition that we uh, don't have access to. Uh, And when this event happens on this mountain, Everything clicks for them in the sense that, oh, that's Moses and that's Elijah. Maybe there's a little bit of their appearance. Maybe there's a little bit of the content of that conversation. It's not purely spiritual. It's very physical. Something is happening on that mountain. That is exactly how all the gospel writers tell us this transfiguration event. It's it's a real event. Something is really happening here, and they really understand that it is Moses and Elijah standing before them. I know that doesn't answer the riddle, how do they know it's Moses and Elijah, that just is barely getting us started, but I don't know how they know. If you find out, tell me. Perhaps uh, it came over uh, time as they were conversing because they are truly hearing uh, the nature of a conversation. But keep, keep this in mind. The conversation is about death. Moses, Jesus, and Elijah, they're talking about death. Maybe we don't talk very much about death, but it's actually not as unusual as you might think for these three to be talking about death. We talk about uh, with others those things we have in common, right? Well, Jesus and Moses and Elijah, they have some pretty funny things in common when it comes to the topic of death. Let me just share three of them with you. Uh, First, uh, these two men, Moses and Elijah, they knew about their death before it came. Not just generally, they actually knew about their death before it came. 
Well, that's true with Jesus as well. He's just shared that with his disciples. And so Jesus, Moses, and Elijah have some commonality there. But the second is this. Both Moses and Elijah died in their health and vigor. That's also going to be true for Jesus. Moses and Elijah were very healthy when they died. Moses was 120 years old, but we are told that he was strong and healthy. And then Jesus is going to die prematurely in earthly terms. Third, there's a considerable mystery regarding the bodies of Moses and Elijah. And Moses was apparently buried by God himself, but there's no record of where he was buried. There's uh, Deuteronomy 34.6 talks to us about the burial of Moses by God, and then there, there being no, uh, no uh, knowledge of where he was buried. Uh, there are all kinds of traditions in church history uh, in, that would say we know where Moses was buried, but the Bible's very clear. That's uh, unique that he would be buried. We're not told who buries him. It seems like God buried him. We don't know where he's buried. And Elijah was never buried because he actually departed in a a whirlwind into heaven. Uh, 2 Kings 2 is where we read of this. And for Jesus, there's also going to be this temporary mystery about the body of our Lord. Uh, The women at at the tomb are going to ask, where has his body been taken? You have that mystery. Where's Elijah's body? Where's Moses' body? Where do they take the body of my Lord? But Jesus uh, returns in that glorified body, and he is very clear that the mystery about his body is over. And maybe this is that kind of moment with Moses and Elijah. The mystery of their body is over. Their body is here. It's somehow glorified when we wouldn't expect it to be glorified. These men have a very, have several good reasons why they should be talking about death. There's a lot in common. But that's different from what's the significance of these two men being present. What is the significance? Does it go beyond the uniqueness of simply their death and details associated with their death? It would seem that God planned the death of Moses and God planned the death of Elijah for just such a moment as this. Do you think that's true? I think that we should find that to be true. That God designed the last days of Elijah and the last days of Moses specifically for this moment on this mountain when they would need those bodies to stand before Jesus and converse with Him about Jesus' own death and do that in the presence of Jesus' three disciples who would one day disseminate what they have learned. Is it possible that our God's internal counsel, the wisdom of His plan, would be such that a detail like that would be cared for? And I think that's exactly the case. It is part of God's eternal plan that these two men would be with Jesus on this mountain. Both of these men are important in the history of God's story of redemption. In the mind of the average Jew, these two men embody the entirety of the history of Israel. Moses, that great prophet statesman, and Elijah, the great prophet who precedes all others. Both of these men anticipating the Messiah without ever seeing Him until now. However, there's something more about these two men 
One serves Moses to gather God's people into a nation that as a people they would take possession of God's promises. Moses is that great gatherer and the people come around him and in Moses is the birth of the nation, is the possession of the special place that God has for them, is the initial blessing that would be to the entire world. That man is Moses, the central figure of the people gathered around him and he says to them, another will come after me who will also preach to you and to him you shall listen. That's what we read earlier in the worship service. Moses is that great gatherer. He aligns the thoughts. He aligns the hopes of the people of Israel, God's own people, and he points them deliberately and directly to Jesus Christ. Moses looks at all of those promises and he restates them to the people, leading them to see those promises fulfilled in none other than Jesus Christ. That's Moses. But what about Elijah? Elijah, on the other hand, lived a life of future realities. When he departed the world, he did so in such a way that anticipated the very return of Jesus with angelic hosts. Elijah is always pointing to the entire fulfillment of God's promises. Elijah is the one who the Jews look forward to seeing in the last days. In fact, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, there are some Jews that stand at the foot of the cross and they are waiting for Elijah to come and rescue Jesus. Elijah is that great eschatological figure, that figure of the future who represents the fullness of God's revelation and the fullness of his plan to take his people into the new heavens and the new earth. Moses gathers the people together for this age. Elijah leads God's people into the age to come. And what are these two intensely interested in talking about right now in this moment? What does Moses want to talk about more than anything? And what does Elijah want to talk about more than anything? The great departure of Jesus. Not only when God subjects Jesus to wrath and punishment on the cross, but also when God is satisfied by that man's punishment and raises him from the dead, that he would receive authority to rule the entire cosmos. That's what Moses and Elijah want to talk to Jesus about because they understand Jesus rightly. He is the great pivotal promise of Genesis and he is the great fulfillment of Revelation. And as the disciples take this in, what are they learning? This is not simply a unique man in our eyes. He is a unique man in the eyes of Moses and Elijah. This is the revelation of all of God's activity in the story of redemption. That's Moses and that's Elijah. Now, we want to move on to consider a couple of responses to this glorious event. There's one by Peter and there's one by God. You know Peter's is not going to be as good as God's. We know that. But as Moses and Elijah appear to leave the mountain conversation, it is Peter who actually interrupts. Moses and Elijah are barely gone. They're in the process of leaving. And Peter somehow has a semblance of mind to speak up. Now, he doesn't have tremendously wise things to say, but he does speak. And he's actually said very, very little in Luke's gospel up to this point. The one thing that Luke has said in, in, uh, I'm sorry, that Peter has said in Luke's gospel is he professed that Jesus is the Christ of God. And now Peter is going to lose all that capital by what he next says. If we could summarize Peter's response, we would have to say that his response goes, along, goes something like this. Jesus, let's make this last forever. 
Let's make this last forever. Let's build tents so that no one has to go anywhere. And it may be he's thinking about the feeding of the 5,000 when they wanted to shoo these people away. And Jesus said, no, let them stay. We're going to feed them. And Peter says, let's make tents. Let's do something that's a symbol of permanency that we might have a conversation late into the night. There's so many other things that could be going through Peter's mind, but clearly this is not the correct response. But Peter would seem to want this event to not end, to stay just like this. I think it's best to understand that Peter just wants it to continue, and I think it's best for you to see that that's not such a bad thing, is it? Wouldn't you like to be a part of that conversation? If you had time with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, would you ever want that to end? These individuals would be able to ferret out answers to our questions. All of our answers or all of our questions would be answered. But Peter wants it to stay exactly like it is, and we ought to also recognize that, yes, wouldn't that be wonderful, but there's one exception. There's one point that would prove that that would not be wonderful for this event to last forever. It is clear from this scene that Jesus has some place to go. Do you get that? They're talking about Jesus' departure from Jerusalem. Jesus has some place to go. He does not serve your intellectual needs to sit and powwow with you right now. He actually has some place to go. He must die. And if He doesn't die, not only is the salvation of the disciples uncertain, so too is the final salvation of Moses and Elijah uncertain. So too is our salvation uncertain. He must die. He must hurry away from this mountain. That's Peter's response. But before that happens, before they leave the mountain, the greatest interruption of all happens. God comes. This is the cloud of God's presence. And if we're to understand this event correctly, it will only happen because God makes that understanding known. He comes. He terrifies the disciples. This is the second response. This is the right response. And God makes the same statement here on this mountain that He made at the baptism of Jesus with one difference. He says, this is my Son, my chosen one, which is similar to saying the Son in whom I am well satisfied or well pleased. And so here the disciples ought not be surprised. They have heard this voice. But God says in verse 35, listen to him. Listen to him. We look this morning at Deuteronomy 18.15. God told Moses to tell the people to listen to this great prophet. Doesn't it sound like God is quoting Moses? God tells Moses what to say. Moses says it. And God here in verse 35 is quoting what Moses said. Listen to him. God shouts at the people. Moses told you this because I told Moses, listen to him. He is the prophet to come. Now, is everyone here lost? What are we supposed to make of this enormous scene? Praise be to God for Scripture that informs Scripture. And you need to know that in 2 Peter chapter 1, the very man who experienced this event tells us how to understand it. Isn't it handy? Like, why, why did I come here this morning to listen to you preach? 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter tells us what we're to take away from this very scene, the man who experienced this. You see, when Peter and the others saw the majesty of Jesus, 
That majesty was not just the power of Jesus, but Peter says that majesty was also the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. And when you look at 2 Peter 1 this afternoon, you'll see exactly what I'm saying. Peter understands this scene on the mountain to be a foretaste. It's a foretaste. That's why I began with that funny Paul Simon quote, that if, if you just barely touch people, you can communicate a lot. And God is barely touching the disciples, and He's making, them, making Himself known. There will be a time when Jesus returns in all of His glory, in all of His regal apparel, and He will shine like the brightest light you, would, you have ever seen, and He Himself will speak out of that light, and He will judge the entire world, everyone, Every body, those who have already died, will be renewed with their bodies that they might see this Jesus, but not only that, that they might be able to listen to this Jesus. You see, Peter knows that this experience on the mountain is a foretaste, is a tiny glimmer of what one day will be an event that nobody will dispute. And Peter says in this passage, Peter is actually, he actually says that this event is confirmation of Jesus and that you will do very well to pay attention to it as a shining lamp in a dark place. Consider 2 Peter 1. I think there's three applications that we must take from this passage uh, given 2 Peter 1. First is this. God confirms His revelation in Jesus and in Jesus alone. There is no way to approach God without Jesus. Anyone who says that they love God, but they're uncertain about Jesus, or they love God, but they, they have no affection for Jesus, they don't love God. They're lying to themselves as they're lying to you. God confirms His revelation in the most clear way, not by the Spirit speaking to you at night, not even by the worship of God's people as they come to this place. God confirms His revelation in His Son Himself. That is God's concentrated revelation of Himself. And that's what Peter wants his audience to understand. But that's what this transfiguration scene shows us. It shows us all of God's attention on Jesus as being the one that Moses and Elijah looked to, as being the one whom God has revealed as His revelation, and as being the one who will one day come again and make God undoubtedly known. God confirms His revelation in Jesus. He must suffer. This is the only way. Two more things. And this is in reference to uh, this transfiguration scene being a foretaste. Peter is writing in... Uh, First and Second Peter, he's writing to people who are really struggling under persecution. And what Peter says to them is, is he says, look, if Jesus doesn't return again, then there is no encouragement in this life of suffering for you. But if he will come again, then all of your suffering in tough times is worth it. And Peter tells them things like remain stable, stand upright, continue to believe, continue to love even amidst extraordinary persecution and suffering. And Peter says, look, you can do that because it will go away in the future when Jesus returns. He will come again. And Peter goes to the transfiguration and he says that showed us not only the power of Jesus, but also the second coming of Jesus. It was but a foretaste. You can suffer in life now because he will come again. You can suffer in life now because he will come again. 
2 Peter 1. It's how to understand the transfiguration. But if it's a foretaste to the Christian for future hope, even amidst profound suffering, it's also a foretaste to those who are ashamed of Jesus. The very end of our last pa- our passage last week, Jesus said that there will be people who, who are ashamed of him. And if this transfiguration scene is just a glimmer of the glory of God revealed, what is it going to be like when there will be no time to listen to him and affirm the gospel? When Jesus comes again, every knee will bow. You will hear him. Your doubts intellectually and experientially will go away in a heartbeat. They'll be gone. He will be right before you. And this event in Luke chapter 9 on the mountain is a foretaste of something more. Do not be ashamed of this Jesus. Because when it happens again, it will be too late for you. Listen to this man. This is but a foretaste, this scene. Uh, We will expand on the scene just a little bit because the disciples are clearly uh, flustered about it in what takes place next. But for now, let's uh, pray together and confess faith together. Please pray with me. Father, we do uh, thank you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself and we thank you that you have protected us from that revelation. We are grateful that our Lord and Savior will come again. What a source of encouragement for us as Christians. And as he comes again, Heavenly Father, uh, we know that you do not desire that any should perish. That also is in Second uh, Peter 1. And yet, some will perish. They will refuse to say yes to the gospel. Father, we will not be daunted. Make your church strong to proclaim the gospel. Would they listen? Would we listen? In Jesus' name, amen.